0: Hello and welcome to the Data Cloud Podcast. Today's episode features an interview with Matt Dugan, VP of Data Platforms at AT AT&T. In this episode, Matt shares with us what it means to delight the customer through interesting deployments in customer service and cost optimization, how AT&T is employing LLMs, and how in these days and times, businesses are only limited by the pace of their own cleverness. So please enjoy this interview between Matt Dugan and your host, Steve Hamm. Dive deep into the world of apps and generative AI at Snowflake Build 2023. This December, developers, data scientists, engineers, and startups will have access to exclusive sessions focused on building apps, data pipelines, and machine learning workflows in the age of generative AI and LLMs. Discover how to use the latest Snowflake innovations through product deep dives, demos, and hands-on labs. Learn more and register for a BUILD event in your region at Snowflake.com slash BUILD.
1: Matt Dugan from AT&T, it's great to have you on the podcast.
2: Thank you, Steve. I'm glad to be here.
1: Now, AT&T is one of the world's best known brands, so our listeners don't need a primer on the company, really. But please tell us about the company's biggest and fastest growing business opportunities and also about the role that data and data analytics plays in them.
2: Yeah, Absolutely at has gone through a few changes, as you might have noticed, over the past few years. And we're, we're really refocused now on a couple of things. One is national fiber optic rollout. And you've probably read some articles about uh, investment partnership in fiber and getting fiber to more spaces around, around the domestic United States. And also, as always, in our wireless. But even now, connecting our wireless and other wireless carriage to our fiber optic backhaul. I'd I'd love to get into the finances and such, but I have to stay away from that right now as we're pretty close to our earnings announcements. But there's a recent article in Fierce Wireless where John Stanky, our CEO, talked about convergence in the telecommunication space. And he likened it to a capillary vascular system, bringing blood and oxygen up, up to our skin, our largest organ that we wear on the outside. And you think of that as the consumers that are interacting with with the network and interacting with services and apps and all the things that that make our lives great and keep us in touch with each other on a daily basis. He said that having that robust fiber infrastructure in all the right places and all the all those right capillaries means that you can support a lot of different access technologies not just AT&Ts but everybody's and there are it's kind of a fallacy to say that there is both fixed networks and wireless networks we're really heading towards that ubiquitous network. And the only thing that can support a ubiquitous network are fiber optic networks with different access technologies at the end of them. So when you think about data and analytics playing into that space, we do a a lot of that to identify where is a best future market opportunity that we provide connectivity, we're going to act as an enabler for a very large area. We look at that through a number of different lenses. One of them is kind of interesting is we use our some internal algorithms we call SIFT, which makes sure that we actually have fairness in what our machine learning results do. And so if you're at a marketing department or a network planning department, you might create a implementation plan that says, okay, there's a lot of economic motility in in these areas. And so I'm going to want to deploy fiber there. But in doing so, you might leave out some areas that you know, haven't yet made it to a certain level economically, but they will, right? And they will if you connect them. And so when we apply our algorithmic debiasing techniques to those from a data analytics perspective, we find that we can meet or beat the traditional revenue forecast models and do so in a way that exudes a lot more fairness and a lot more equitability in the way that we generate networks and generate access.
1: Yeah. Yeah. That is fascinating. You know, I think about fairness and I think about justice and and kind of economic justice around the world. And this is just such a core function that all humans need. And the notion that if you can spread it out and give everybody access, you're going to have a better world is kind of inspiring. So I'm I'm glad you guys are doing that.
2: 200 years ago, we started with life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And I, I think if If we took another look at it today, we'd also want, you know, internet and free Wi-Fi, right?
1: Yeah, yeah, that's right. That's right. Now, talk to us about your role as VP of of data platforms. How does the company manage data and how do you fit into that management structure?
2: So my role is to lead our, what we call our enterprise data technology teams. So this is all of the data platforms that support and underlie AT&T's business, our government services, our consumer and mass market services, and our analytical services that we do for what you might call like corporate functions. So this is everything from network operations to finance, to sales, billing, legal, regulatory compliance, workloads, and those data environments to support those groups. I report to our chief data and AI officer in the office of the CTO, which is obviously under John Stanky, who's our leader and the CEO of, of at and At the CDO level, the chief data office level, we take this area, the data platform area, and we now then expand it to include our governance functions around data and AI to say that we have appropriate use, appropriate use cases. We have our business engagement and training arms that we do hold some internal conferences inside the company. We offer up training on the tools and technologies that you're going to interact with if you come into the data platform to work with data. We also have our AI and research and internal professional services teams that we deploy onto large business problems around the company.
1: Within AT&T, is data primarily used to improve efficiency, or is there also a big opportunity for kind of insights and innovation by the company that come out of it?
2: Yeah, we do both. It's it's easy, I, I think, in the current economy to think about data and AI as a, as a way to drive efficiency, and we certainly do that, and we do a lot of it. We have big targets in that space to to hit in terms of efficiency, but the much bigger numbers are on the revenue side of the business and how data and AI helps us better interact with our customers. In fact, uh, I've got an interesting short story where we actually have some AI that's interfacing directly with customers in a chatbot kind of experience, a self-help kind of experience. It's a limited rollout, but what's really cool about it is the, is the AI actually starts with saying, Hey, I'm an AI and I can chat with you and I can talk with you while, you know, while we wait for an agent, but I can potentially help you with your problem. Are you willing to try it? Customer says, sure. Yeah, I'm willing to try. And they go through the thing. And we've actually have some, some of those that we, we study and we look at that interaction to see how we can improve it. And sometimes the AI is able to help them solve the problem. And the customer says, well, thank you. And yeah. You go, well, hold on a minute. You, did you forget, like you're talking with a machine and you're saying, thank you. Well, that yeah. that means that we're actually getting to a pretty cool spot where we're doing a really good job and no. delighting the customer. So it's it, we have some interesting deployments in this kind of spaces and customer service space as well as cost optimization space. But really, we're really going after the whole gamut, network optimization, traffic optimization, how we how we deal with carriage, how we deal with detecting security threats, all these kinds of things that help us be a better business and better service provider to both direct consumer customers and business customers. Yeah.
1: Yeah. I love your story about the chatbot. I had an experience a couple of days ago where I was speaking to something and at first I thought it was a human and then it I then I realized it was a chatbot. I think it's really good to be transparent to kind of do it right up front, you know. Yeah. yeah so. You have to do it right up
2: front. Otherwise, <laughs> yeah. you, you know, you never want to run the risk of freaking people out with, with an AI or an insight, right? You, you don't wanna get into creepy mode. And I think the best way to avoid it is just to say upfront, hey, AI is being used here. You might see some results that seem oddly specific. And so we do that in cases where, like working with Microsoft when you do with co-pilot experiences. So we have rules right. in our in our internal governance around AI that say, if you're using an AI result as part of a business communication, for example, you have to credit it. You have to say, hey, Part of this result, or this specific part of this result, was either generated by or generated with assistance from the AI. And that way, we keep everything out in the open and upfront. Yeah, yeah. no, that's great.
1: Now, I checked out your LinkedIn you know, profile and I, I saw that something pretty interesting. You have worked at ATT three different times, separated by short stints at other companies. So, first, what's that all about? And second, how have your career experiences in and outside AT&T helped? You know prepare you for these challenges that you're facing today
2: so i like to say that this is actually my fourth time with the american telephone and telegraph family the 16 of the last 24 years starting with bell south actually back in 1999 as an electrical engineer as a as a you know specialist in the field a measuring wheel poles and holes lots of cad you know real physical layer engineering and when I left, I made the pivot to go into technology and software, which was a passion of mine that was developing then at that time. And, and so I would say that I didn't always intend to leave, but I was afforded the opportunity to engage in some strategic ventures along the way. So I, I, only, I only ever actually left twice, once to actually do a career change and you know, came back after that career change, and then, and then once to go do something totally different. For me, at least, I think it helped a lot because I actually got experience in sales sides as well, you know, as well as the revenue side. So being able to do the the top line and the bottom line, so the revenue and the, and the costs. And through my career, I've had exposure up and down the stack of technology. So from physical layer distribution and trunk, I mentioned out in the field, you know, you, you you get down into a, a manhole. And what's unique or what's distinct, I should say, is that they're all. Uh you know, deep and dark and often you know covered in mud <laughs> and you you reach your hand out in the dark and you and you grab a cable in its way, wrapping around the wall to go into conduit on the other side and you and you you grip it and you hold on to it, and you say, "You know do I think this is eight hundred pairs of twenty four gauge cable, or do I think this is?" You know, twelve hundred pairs of twenty-six gauge cable because both of these go into that conduit. Which you know, which one do I think I'm older? <laughs> and you draw it up in CAD and whatnot. And once the guys get out there in the field, they go, "Oh, he he meant he's referring to the eight hundred pair twenty-four gauge cable. That's this one. We're going to open it up and and change some things around." So getting into that, from there going into systems programming, applications and middleware. Did a tour through the mainframes, and now I own those systems today, and then even getting to do data and data science from the edge with Internet of Things, IoT, and mobile network analysis. So that's been a lot of fun for me to cross up and down those spaces. But to your point, I, I do sometimes worry. In fact, when I when I took this role late last year, I told my boss that, you know, if I accept this, I'm now the Mark Hamill of telecommunications. Like, I cannot <laughs> be cast in another role here. Oh, yeah. So, I'm, But I'm excited to be here. I'm excited to be back and it's been a lot of fun.
1: Are there kind of patterns that you've seen that kind of cut across these different experiences that really have have helped you kind of frame, you know, the kinds of things you're doing now?
2: Yeah, I would liken it a lot to myself being a computer and electrical engineer by education, and then going into an environment and discipline, which which was well populated by computer scientists, and then getting into the the data science category, which is Well populated by both computer scientists and physicists, and you know, chemists and biologists and and other engineers that have a deep background in math and statistics. And having that engineering background and coming to a place where oftentimes the mode, the vehicle of of solution is computer science theory or mathematics. Often as an engineer, you you're more rooted in the physical. So how how do things look actually when they go into memory? What How do registers work? What are the kinds of problems that make things IO dependent, CPU dependent, memory dependent, and things like that. And they're often missed by these other disciplines that sort of go into this very hyper-focused domain. And so having that experience and seeing these things, you find these patterns that aren't always observed by the incumbents in an individual space and so going across those spaces you find things like well am i really dealing with a problem that can be made embarrassingly parallel if i just thought of it differently you know and and we do that now a lot in the data and ai space because we want to get things into an embarrassingly parallel situation and use elastic scale where we can i've made the joke where we say you tell this joke to the computer scientists, they laugh because they say, you know, the main main problems that you go into the data center is if your job doesn't run well, you're you're sort of just spending electricity and generating heat. But to an engineer, those are your two biggest problems in the data center is power power supply and power management and cooling management. And when you have a lot of waste in the data center, these are where your problems are exhibited. And so it's kind of funny on one side, but true on the other. And how we make those things efficient is how we grow and we scale.
1: Yeah. Interesting. You know, your to your point about kind of expertise, you know, the 20th century was really the century of, you know, domains and, and silos, silos of data, silos of expertise, silos, you know, professional silos. And really now we're really seeing this kind of reintegration. We're seeing it in data management and we're also seeing it in large language models. So it's kind of... It's almost like technology is weaving, you know, society back together after this kind of dispersal and this separation of, of expertise. And hopefully, since big, complex problems are not in one domain, we'll be able to solve some of them better by through this reintegration. I mean, at least that's my hope anyway. So when and why did AT&T begin its relationship with Snowflake um, and and begin adopting the the data
2: cloud. Yeah, actually it, I had the privileges of being right at the beginning of that relationship. So when AT&T branched out and formed a division of our company called AT&T Advertising and Analytics and then that that was formed on the heels of the Time Warner acquisition. So this is sort of all seems like distant past but it's but it's in fact if you look at it chronologically it's fairly recent history in a 145 year company. And we knew that we wanted to be AT&T's 1st mover into a cloud-first architecture and a cloud-first technology base. And that, and that led to us exploring into Snowflake. And some of our partners on the Time Warner, what became Warner Media side, had already began dabbling in, in Snowflake. And, and so as we started to work together, we said, you know what, we should adopt this. We should attempt to standardize our cloud-based data in Snowflake. And so we went we went that route and we began with a virtual private snowflake solution so that we had all the layers of of security and isolation that that AT&T required especially you know being a very conservative company from a technological and risk risk-based analysis kind of group into saying okay well we're going to start putting information in the cloud what are we worried about what what kind of what kind of contingencies can we put in place that allow us to be feel very secure about our, our cloud data? So I got to lead that group and lead that rollout and lead that architecture. And so we, we started out there in Snowflake and then after proving that now it's become a centerpiece inside at and data platform. And we have a lot of, a lot of things, you know, even more things as we unpack and unravel our many data centers and many on-premise systems, Snowflake is, is often the target for conversion.
1: Yeah. Yeah, a lot of people point to data sharing. You know, that's something that the the data cloud really enables really well. How do you share data with your business partners? And I'm I'm in particular, I, I want to hear about the providers of over the top services.
2: Over the top, AT and T no longer provides the the companies that that do over the top, but we still provide some services back and forth for some providers in that space that. That are, that are working on their own, standing up their own setups for themselves. And we use Snowflake data sharing in order to accomplish that one copy of data model. And that enables us to deal both with data that's being provided for internal environments. So in, in the sense of like our, our business division, our business division has a Snowflake subscription And then we data share from the platform to them that allows us to achieve that one copy and then to achieve fair bits of control and and how they work with that one copy. And we're able to do the same thing with various partners. We seek that pattern where we can because it actually simplifies a lot of things for us. I talk about us being 145 years young. We have many, many things that predate Snowflake that have been afforded as ways to exchange information since, you know a time predating the internet. And and a lot of those ways still exist, you know, in different spaces, or analogs of those ways exist in the digital space. And we want to modernize them. And so we we try first whenever we engage in a in some sort of a, a data partnership with, you know, internal internal solution providers or internal business units or external parties that are going to provide us information that we're licensing we look for the ability to consume it as a direct snowflake to snowflake share first. And if that's not possible for whatever reason, then we have different methods of fallback. But our, our goal is to get to that single version of truth that we with a one copy of data that we can exhibit through data sharing and then be able to apply all those additional levers for scale and optimization and deal with that mixed mode computation on data.
1: Yeah. Now your company has the the highest, the very highest standards for kind of always on, always available. When you're shifting over from some of these legacy ways of sharing data, you can't have a, a hiccup. I mean, is 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 it pretty? Is it relatively easy to do that that switch over, or is just you know, is there some magic to it?
2: I wish it were easy. It, it takes a lot of dedication. the 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 trouble with that is that. In isolation, the individual problems are very simple. And you say, okay, well, I, I have records of data that are in some format, it could be a CSV, it could be pipe delimited, it could be something like that. And they are they are exhibited through this internal, you know, file gateway process. And you go, oh, okay, well, CSV or or pipe delimited, that's that's tabular data. I could make a table of that, and then I could just data share it. And all I gotta do is sign up for two accounts, right? And and that's and that's good, except that. You have all of these systems that date from the 1970s up to the 2021, <laughs> that all have different patterns and different library sets. And, and the mainframe is none too good at talking to Snowflake. And the the Linux server that time forgot that's been since drywalled into a wall with a network cable hanging out, I I just but I have seen that at at, at another company <laughs> once in my tour. That you know, they don't necessarily have the ability. Or, or the remembrance to get in and modify that code. And so it's, it's really an intensive effort in analysis to see what are all the dependencies and loopbacks that connect back and, and talk to this information and make sure that we're able to solve for all of them and repoint all of them. And that's actually the larger effort, apart from just actually moving the data to a database native, cloud native kind of provisioning model.
1: Now, how are you using data science to make AT T's data management processes more efficient? And, and this is really, I, I'm asking this uh, a Snowflake question. What about Snowpark? How are you using that?
2: Yeah, so we have some data services that we that we implement and instrument that use Snowflake compute, compute services among other technologies. Our data science teams are beginning to leverage Snowpark. They're interested in it because they like the the almost serverless nature of it and the way that they can interact with it for rapid prototyping and still get that elastic scale. We recently saw the rollout of snow apps at the summit. And a lot of us are interested to try, try some things out with that. We've got, I think personally, and, and, Anyone that, if I was able to bring them completely behind the curtain, I, I think would be pretty excited too. Some really exciting developments in observability across this heterogeneous technological landscape uh, that we have in the data platforms. And when you think about observability in that kind of scale, and you add generative AI and some automated reasoning strategies, I think we got a lot of cool things to come that, that are gonna, you know, I would like to see these kind of things featured and talked about in engineering and very technical conferences. Because I think there's a lot of spots where we're really leading the way in the industry.
1: Oh, cool, cool. Well, let's let's go there with with AI. How are you using large language models such as GPT four and you're using any others? I mean, what's how is it, how are you bringing this to bear? It's brand new stuff. It's just kind
2: of exciting, right? It's brand new, but you know, it's interesting because the the GPT algorithm has a has an origination story that connects back into bell labs and and what what was interesting is that upon the invention of that algorithm back in the 70s it was like oh yeah cool toy bro but now we've reached the generation of compute and and compute availability through clusters and cloud based elasticity that it becomes possible to run that algorithm at a scale big enough to make something like a generalized large language model that can become almost Yeah, (laughs) almost human-like in in interaction in English language, and then there's a lot of other versions of these that are that are branching out into multiple languages and are and are starting to reach that that competency of, of conversational interaction, and so we we immediately knew the potential of this because we had been involved with it in the early days and and we're always looking for stuff like this, and we said, well, wait a minute, if we can. If we can get to the point that we can provide instruction or we can provide query or we can provide conversation and we can exhibit generative outputs that are in line with that instruction or conversation, then, then we can generate a lot of utility. You know, We all write a lot of email. We all read a lot of email. We all make a lot of documents. We all read a lot of documents. We all write a lot of code and occasionally read other people's code. So it'd be nice to have that understanding that inference and even that reasoning that comes with language model based understanding. And so we very quickly pulled together with a with our through Microsoft using the cognitive services the OpenAI models that were built. So we started with GPT 3, then into 3.5, 3.5 Turbo, and now GPT-4. And we implemented something we call internally as Ask ATT. And this has recently won, won the CTO's award for innovation here in the company. I personally use it to help me write my status reports and put those all in, in nice language and nice bullets and everything else. We have our things that we do like employee surveys, and we use it to collate and find main ideas and frequency and all that kind of stuff. And, and you can do that with, with instruction.
1: It's basically somebody can get on, talk to a bot about helping them do their job better. It sounds like is that part of it, or completely how would you yeah describe? so so
2: it's yeah. it's your it's your companion it, that we have internally rolled out and and we did that, and we did that because we did not want you know open AI for example, was making a lot of innovations in the space and they're providing these services out in the public, but we did not want to take the risk with a t and t s information you know about the about the network or about our internal i p developments or about other things that we're just going to start putting this information out into the public sphere and hope that it stays private. And in fact, there's been evidence to the contrary that it doesn't, that kind of information doesn't always stay private when you use these. So what we did is we set up a private endpoint services that allowed us to use at ts information back and forth in a, in a stateless enclave to enable the protection of that at t information, that at t intellectual property, and and be able to generate the results at the same scale and capability that the public services were, but using it in a very private way.
1: That is really interesting. But I'm, I'm just really captivated with that because you know I think th- this whole promise of the personal digital assistant, which really for me re- emerged in the early '90s, you know, it's always out there. As a, you know, we'll get there someday. I think we're getting there. You know, we're within touch distance, there, I think. Yeah. yeah, well, let's talk about good things and let's talk about the future some more. I'm going to ask you to put on your visionary cap for a minute.
2: I see the future.
1: What a fascinating modern age we live in.
2: Is this what the future holds?
1: Looking out five years or more. What are the major shifts that you see coming that could have major impacts, you know, on business and even on our society?
2: You know, I, I would say that some of this comes back to a bit of where where we started. The the notion to provide ubiquitous high speed connectivity. We we like to think of it, you know, and a lot of us that are privileged enough to to live in more developed parts of the world, we we like to think that it's mostly arrived, but it isn't everywhere yet, and there's hundreds of millions, if not billions of people that are not yet enabled to experience that ubiquitous high-speed connectivity. And especially now with this advent of really capable AI that can act as your digital companion, can help you through complex problems or or dealing with information domains that you may not have a, a deep personal expertise in, but now you can be very highly multimodal across information domains because you have this companion beside you that has all this accessibility via English language instruction, I think there's an opportunity to see really rapid innovation because what happens is that you have your initial technical and expertise barriers are reduced right so r- rather than having to go and say, "Well, I want to write a a power app or I want to build a I want to build a language tokenizer in python well maybe maybe I don't have the expertise to do that." But I can now kickstart myself through some of that using, using generative AI capability. Well, those are nice. But now what I want to do is I want to use them with cloud services. I want to use them with Elastic Scale. Maybe I want to front-end it with something at the edge and I want to have a, a mobile application connect back to these things. This is such a disparate set of technologies and technical domains that are, that are each one deeply, deeply complicated. And I think that we're heading into a point that what used to take a reasonably large team, I, mean, I won't say like ultra large company, but at least a regionally large, reasonably large team of experts to do can now be sort of gotten through with someone that has enough of an understanding, sort of has the ability to be a bit of a mile wide and inch deep and leverage, and leverage these capabilities to start pulling some of these components together and start exercising them. And... If you take that a couple of steps further and you start thinking that ultimately with these generative AIs you're gonna start, I think you're gonna to start to see marketplaces of specialization mm-hmm. occurring in these AIs to where now you can leverage one that says, oh yeah, I really know how to communicate to edge systems or I really know how to communicate and deal with elastic scale and operational semantics that you might have in the cloud. And you start to tie these things together you're really at the limit of what you can conceptualize. A lot of us, I I think, are Star Trek nerds or Star Wars nerds. And I remember there was this this theory that what's the last invention that humanity will ever make? Well, it was going to be the holodeck because then you could have anything you wanted if you could just conceive it. And then from that point, any, any money or any credit that was earned would be to spend more time in the holodeck where you could literally have or be anything. I think we're heading to the point that you're going to have the ability to create almost anything.
1: Yeah, I, it, to me the beauty of it is that it really is democratizing, you know, information, you know, knowledge, power, all those kinds of things. You know, I I grew up in Appalachia and I recently had a, a actually on Riverside a a video interview with a guy from from West Virginia. It took almost an hour and a half to upload his his side of the video. So it's not the third world, you know, I mean, we, we we have a lot of reaching out and empowering to do in our own country. And I, and I think the kinds of innovations you're talking about are things obviously do it, you know, primarily in large businesses, then smaller, sophisticated businesses, but ultimately it touches hopefully almost everybody. So that is a hopeful thought. So I wanted to talk to you a little bit about, you know, Another another element of this, which is, I think we think a lot about we've we've talked about bots, chat bots, and stuff like that. But there are other AI kind of robotic things out there. It seems like networks, like at ts will be a, kind of essential elements to enabling connected cars, driverless cars. How do you see that technology playing out, uh, and what role do you see for AT and
2: think this goes back to. A bit of the first question, where we where we talked about the capillary system with different access providers and different mechanisms. You know, AT and T wants to be that integrated provider of communications that change everything for the better for our customers. So that connected cars, IoT, et cetera, all these are at the end of it. They are they are consumer level experiences that enable that innovation at the edge, but also enable that better quality of life for consumers, and then meet that consumer demand. But what's distinct about all of them, that they all, have, and they all have this in common, is that those services at the edge need that reliable, fast connection back to the network and the ability to access and talk to these other services across access providers. So going from provider to provider kind of communication. And I think what we're gonna see is that a demand for additional connected compute data and AI kind of capabilities in between and among those services. And I think AT&T is going to be well-positioned to be able to bring to bear that massive amount of bandwidth that's going to be required at a very low latency to be able to manage and enable and empower those kind of experiences. I don't think we have to invent everything, but I do think that we're going to be there for those inventions.
1: You're going to be a great enabler. It's kind of like the backbone for for innovation. Yeah. Very cool. Hey, you know, we're coming to the end of the podcast, and we typically end on a lighter or more personal note. For your information, there's a lot more to ogres than people think.
0: Really need to dig deep and get to know the real you. In the real up close and personal.
1: Now, we've talked before, you know, there's this Google paper by one of the engineers this engineer said, "When it comes to technology and innovation, Google has no moat around the castle, and neither does anybody else." So, I know that this is something that really excited you. So, tell us, tell us more, a little more, a little background about that, and and why it excites you.
2: You know, it excites me because when I started with computing, obviously pre-internet, and and every computer, every every computing experience sort of started as a as a box of parts and wires and not, Mm. not just, you know, one box that everything came in and you just put it together, but many different boxes, or maybe you piled them all in the same box and you had your box bin that you were pulling different things out of going, Oh, I can use this ribbon cable for this. And, you know, and, and your hardware had dip switches and other things that you had to make sure were right and jumpers and pins to to connect them in order to make things work. And so I, I come from, from that kind of background. And, and so every generation of computing to me has felt like a, a higher level layer of abstraction that enabled more things to work together more easily. And I, I think this is what we're seeing now. And we started to see this in software and with apps really powerfully when smartphones became a thing because suddenly the next generation of innovation was categorically a clever bit of code that happened to run on a handset. And, the, and now we're seeing the point where now innovation can be more and more so created as that is that just exercise of cleverness. Only now you may not even have to be clever enough to write the code. Just clever enough to be able to describe it and describe the idea and describe the semantics of how it might work. And so as we get to these layers of abstractions, I, I think to me that's personally exciting because as a, as a developer, as an engineer, like all through my career... It's been exciting to create and, and you're, you were limited by how much hardware, how much stuff you had, or you were limited by how fast you could type, right. Or how fast you could read, how fast you could learn something new and then how you could apply it. But there was always that thing that you didn't learn. You didn't know. Maybe it was just off the radar. And, and now you get the ability to bring these things in. And so. What I, what I think is, is so exciting, and, and it, for me, it speaks to me personally, is this notion of, of just this as-yet-untapped innovation that's only been limited by making a connection between two technological spaces at a level of abstraction that makes it possible to put them together. So that engineer's paper about you know Google Has No Moat was really saying that we're doing this, and we wrote this really clever code. And the distance of our innovation has always been our ability to have our own fast hardware and our own access, our own networks, and our own ability to build these things within our castle. But now it's that layer of abstraction has reached elastic scale infrastructure providers and it has reached people that may not necessarily need to have their own data center in addition to a cloud data center. The notion of the Laptop in the corner booth that had the network jack is, is now been replaced by the fact that I can do this from my phone from my smartphone yeah. or from my tablet on, on a coffee shop Wi-Fi or any, or on a 5G signal. Doesn't yeah. matter. And I can orchestrate these things. And we're limited now by our pace of cleverness. Can we continue to be clever enough to continue to run further, faster than the next set of clever people behind us? It's a really exciting place to be because I'm excited to see what everyone else invents too.
1: Yeah, interesting. Very good. You know, it's interesting. You know, network effects still extremely powerful for at t for Google, for some of the other big players. But I think you're right that we innovation, creativity has been unleashed and the greatest new idea could come from anywhere and it could come very fast. So I think that's very encouraging, even though, you know, it, it doesn't make it easy for corporations to assure their steady profits, but in terms of the outcome for society, it's it's actually probably better. So yeah. this has been a fascinating conversation. I really enjoyed it. You've been one of our more technical conversations. I think a lot of people are going to get some really important details out of it. I think that's been really great. I mean, I was personally inspired by your talk about SIFT. S-I-F-T, you know, that yep. internal algorithm that is about assuring fairness and how the network operates. I think that's very thoughtful. And also the Ask ATT thing, the, the internal large language model that people can, you know, employees can basically ask for help or advice or, or tips and stuff like that. And I think every company needs that. So hey, there's, hey, there's a business opportunity for you. Anyway, thank you so much, Matt. It's been great talking to you and
2: wish you all the best. Thank you, Steve. And I, I appreciate any time the opportunity to have somebody that's willing to talk nerdy with me.
0: How you approach data will define what's possible for your organization. Data engineers, data scientists, application developers, and a host of other data professionals who depend on the Snowflake data cloud continue to thrive thanks to a decade of technology breakthroughs. But that journey is only the beginning. Catch up on all the latest announcements from Snowflake Summit, including advancements with generative AI and LLMs, flexible programmability, application development, and much more. Watch now at snowflake.com slash summit slash live